0: Untextbooked.
1: You're listening to Untextbooked. This is a history podcast for the future that gives young people like us agency and voice in our education. I'm your host, Gabe Hostin.
0: I'm Sydney Clark, and I'm a producer for this season.
1: Follow Untextbooked on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen, so you never miss an episode.
0: This week, I want to learn more about the history of spoken word poetry and uncover as to why poetry, spoken word specifically, seems to be thrown to the sidelines in the realm of literature.
2: Tamara has never listened to hip hop.
0: Our guide today is Dr. Joshua Bennett.
2: Never danced to the rhythm of raindrops or fallen asleep to a chorus of chirping crickets. She has been deaf for as long as I've been alive. And ever since the day I first turned five, my father has said, Joshua, nothing is wrong with Tamara. God just makes
0: some
1: people different.
0: <clears throat> he is a poet. Here, he is performing at the White House for President Barack Obama in 2009.
1: Alright, that's
0: huge. Yep, that's right.
2: Tamara, I am sorry for my silence, but true love knows no frequency. And so I will use these hands to speak volumes that can never be contained within the boundaries of sound waves. I will shout at the top of my fingertips until digits dance and relay these mental messages directly to your soul. I know that there is no poem that can make up for all the time we have lost. So please, if you can,
1: just listen. Thank you.
2: I'm a professor at MIT. I teach poetry
0: to mathematicians and engineers and young scientists. I read his book, Spoken Word, A Cultural History. It's a narrative filled with personal stories and the history of this spoken word art form. He takes us back to the living room in New York City that birthed a new sound of poetry and culture. It was a New Yorican movement.
1: New Yorican? Is that a New York but Puerto Rican movement? Yup. That's sick. New Yorican? What? I'm a New Yorican. Represent. What?
2: The writers in this book were coming from all sorts of situations. They were formerly incarcerated. You know, they were black feminist playwrights. They were Shakespeare study scholars. They were, you know, activists. And they were people who were thinking quite deeply about what it meant to be able to transform the social order. And they really believed that poetry could be part of
1: that. Pedro Pietri, Tato La Vieira, right? The one and only Lynn manuel Miranda.
0: William Carlos Williams, Sanja Marie Estevez, and Saul Williams, the Saul Williams from the movie Slam. All of these poets can credit their literary origins back to one place, a living room, in the 1970s.
1: What was going down in this living room?
0: Well, let me tell you.
2: to a young man named Miguel Algarín who's a Shakespeare scholar and also a poet.
0: Miguel Algarín has a mustache and his mouth is always wide open, as if he's in the middle of a hearty laugh. His family came from Puerto Rico and made their home in New York City, along with hundreds of thousands of other Puerto Ricans migrating north to the mainland. In the 1970s, he invited his friends over to his apartment all the time. I just imagine poetry flowing, music playing, lively discussions about what it means to be Puerto Rican living in New York City his friends would be having such a great time. They just crashed in his living room night after night.
1: Man,
2: sounds like fun. Right? He had to wake up and and go to work, right? So Miguel, over the course of the years, he taught uh, in English and Puerto Rican studies at Rutgers,
0: but also places like Brooklyn College. Eventually, though, he realized he was out of space. So in the 80s, he and his friends started a cafe, not far from the original living room in the Lower East Side of New York City.
2: How did this small gathering in a living room turn into almost undoubtedly, you know, to my mind, one of the most vibrant poetry scenes in the history of the the modern world, right? Like the New Eurekan is the most prominent spoken word venue on earth, right? How did it become that emerging from this kind of living room scene? And part of the answer is that really brilliant people from all walks of life gathered there and helped create this thing called the New Eurekan sound and a New Eurekan scene.
1: So this is an actual place? We could go there right now?
0: Yep. It's now called the New Rican Poets Cafe. They host open mic nights, music jams, block parties. It's a cultural hub.
1: Now, of course, Puerto Rican New Yorkers or New Yoricans have a vibrant, vivid culture. But I got to ask, what makes New Rican poetry so distinctive?
0: Well... There are a plethora of reasons, but I'll let Miguel Agurín speak for himself. This is from an essay he published in 1975. The poems document the conditions of survival. Many roaches, many busts, many drug poems, many hate poems, many, many poems of complaints. But the complaints are delivered in a new rhythm. It is a bomba rhythm, with many changing pitches delivered with a bold stress.
1: The pitches vary, but the stress is always bomba. Preach. And the vocabulary is English and Spanish mixed into a new language.
0: Professor Bennett was able to talk to many of the poets who helped create this iconic cafe. He also spoke to poets who came up through the literary world of the cafe. One of those icons is THE Saul Williams.
2: Yo son, as in so law simply, because we are, we be, the rising stars and suns that never set word up, Jack.
0: Saul won the title of New Yorican Poets Cafe's Grand Slam champion in 1998. I wanted to talk to Professor Bennett about these two incredible poets, Miguel Agarín and Saul Williams.
2: Saul Williams changed my life. I met Saul as a teenage poet at Brave New Voices Um, the year I was on the Philly team that won it. You know, the year before we were filmed for that HBO documentary, Saul was there. And his encouragement meant the world to me as a 18 year old, I just thought this guy is the greatest poet on earth. (laughs) Like just seeing what he was able to do. Yeah. He's
0: one of the good ones.
2: Yeah. Just seeing him in front of a microphone. I just thought, yeah, this guy has got it. And he also had this thing, which I still really admire in so many of my my peers, you know, in in the field Um, and our ancestors too, people who are able to take a multiplicity of traditions and bring them together. This is also what I love about Nikki Giovanni, Sonia Sanchez, Amiri Baraka, people who clearly have studied Black preaching, Black music, have studied Black poetry, and they're able to fuse those traditions into their performance. Again, so that someone who maybe is only familiar with one of those things has a place at the table. You know, like there's something for you to latch on to. Let's say you're just a hip hop head, right? And you throw on Saul. That'll still vibe with you, right? Let's say you're someone who grew up in a certain Black preaching tradition, right? Saul is still vibe with. Yep. <laughs> Let's say you're someone who grew up on, on Walt drums, Whitman.
1: And we be beating infinity over sacred hums. Spinning funk like myrrh until Jesus comes. And Jesus comes every time we drum. And the moon drips blood and eclipses the sun. And out of darkness comes a <laughs> And out of darkness comes a <laughs> and <laughs> And out of darkness comes the. A... Um... Yeah!
2: Right, you'll still be able to catch the kind of references in Saul and his deep literariness in a way that I think folks appreciate. And lest we forget, right? He's trained at Tisch, right? His brothers trained at one of the top acting programs in the world. So he also just has that, that kind of grounding and an actor's sensibility in a way that I appreciate. So, I mean, it was just, it was incredible to get the chance to catch up with him one after many years and have that conversation, which largely was about just how we were navigating those early days of the pandemic with our families. And that was really interesting that even though I was making these phone calls to talk about poetry, we always ended up talking about life. Because ultimately this this is a book about people's actual lives and how poetry was a... Um, A tool, right, was an instrument for them to gather together, right? Poetry was an excuse to gather in a room and imagine another world. And so, I think the fact that I met Saul in an actual room, the fact that I met Miguel Algarín, even without knowing who he was, right, as a teenage poet and then a poet in my early twenties, meant a great deal to me too, right? He just offered, you know, his feedback, and then we we kept it moving, and then I would learn, like, oh, wait, so the guy who founded this thing was actually here. So yeah, they, they made a tremendous impact on me, me personally.
0: Wow. Spoken Word, A Cultural History is a deeply personal book. The birth of his son inspired his search into history.
2: So my... My wife, Pam, is a Honduran and Puerto Rican. And when our son was born, I went searching for heroes, right? I wanted to think about, well, who are the Puerto Rican poets in history that I can teach my son alongside this, this kind of larger or within, you know, this larger African diasporic literary tradition.
0: He essentially wanted his young son to have heroes to admire and be inspired by. Professor Bennett grew up immersed in community and rich cultural traditions. He saw people who looked like him, who shared his identity, and inspired his creativity.
2: How did my love for poetry begin? It began with family. So when I was about four years old, I would improvise sermons when I would come home from church, and my parents and my big sister would just gather around me. For about 20, 30 minutes, you know, off the top of my head, I would would do the whole thing. I would introduce a text and kind of just expound on it, and... That taught me a really important lesson, I think as a young person, it taught me that I had a critical viewpoint that mattered and that I had a voice and that it was possible that other people in the world might make room for it. And I think I just never really shook off that idea. And so that all started in that that dining room, but also in the, the Black church. Also in the the first school I ever attended, the Modern School in Harlem, which was an all-Black independent school with Black teachers and my Black classmates, who I think every day affirmed for me that Blackness was a capacious space, uh, that it was a space of infinite possibility and imagination. We recited poetry in that space. We uh, practiced plays and we learned music and we learned about the great inventions and interventions of our ancestors. And so... In some ways, it feels like it was always meant to be. I mean, it could have gone another way, but I'm a product of, of Black institutions and of environments where people loved me very much and um, trusted me to go on this this great adventure knowing that I was never alone and that people had gone before me to make the pathway clear.
0: Wow. I honestly love to hear how, you know, growing up in rich Black spaces essentially, like, helped birth, you know, your love and help you feel invigorated in that. And there was a quote specifically that you said in your book, you said, I attended church with an Afro-Jesus adorning the walls of our Sunday school classrooms. To my mind, if the Messiah was a black man, then what did I have to feel insecure or ashamed about? Did that form of representation impact the ways that you like see yourself in the world? And also do you think that that form of representation played a big part in your influence in writing overall.
2: Oh, a hundred percent. Like that started at quite a young age where blackness was ordinary, right? It was extraordinary too. Like in that passage that you pulled, it was also cosmic, right? The idea was that, you know, if we were part of God and God had made us, then yeah, then blackness was a part of God too. This is a revolutionary idea, I think, to give a, a little kid. Because it just sets your standard for the rest of your life. As a child, you're you're reading these things. You're reading Gwendolyn Brooks. You're learning about Claude McKay and Langston Hughes. And you just come to see yourself as just a full human subject, right? Who can go out into the world and change things. And you understand that your imagination is a bountiful place. And that even when you're mistreated, it's not because there's a deeper truth to that mistreatment. You're not mistreated because you deserve it. Right? You're mistreated because people have a fundamental misunderstanding of your human dignity and of your beauty and of your complexity. And so that absolutely shaped the way I write everything.
0: It's just so clear, even just from what you're saying, that representation is so important and it can go so far and have such an enormous impact on children of color's lives. Switching gears a little bit, you mentioned how Harold Bloom once wrote in the Paris Review that slam poetry is quote unquote, the death of art. And in response, you described slam poetry as the art of death, the art of dying to oneself. And I personally, when I read that, I you know took a moment and I really pondered on that. You know, you have in the underrated genre of poetry, you have a subgenre that seems to be even kind of more underappreciated. And you know, you have people constantly trying to deny whether it's valid or not. So, you know, I just wanted to know like what you meant by that, you know, in your response to Harold Bloom's opinion. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm a, a
2: poet and a hip hop fan. So I always just love a bit of good wordplay, play, right? Uh, so I thought, you know, oh yeah, death of art, art of death, there's something there. But part of what I'm trying to track as well, right, is that that language is already embedded into the actual practice of poetry slams. So every poetry slam starts with a sacrificial poet, right? I've always been fascinated by that, right? That kind of religious imagery. Why is that part of how we begin? That someone puts themselves before the judges to say, you'll address and assess my work before you get to the poets who've actually signed up for the slam. So I was interested in that. I was also interested in the fact that um kind of units of a poetry slam, you know, or individual events are called bouts. Right, so if you go to a national poetry slam, a bout will be between four teams from the same city. I thought that was interesting. The fact that it's called a slam, right? Which uh, you know, Mark Smith says that, well, he said once that that uh, a poetry slam was based on the grand slam and not a wrestling move. Though I, you know, that's a point of contention for me in the book is that I actually think if you trace it right to these uh, sort of Touse poetry heavyweight boxing matches, there actually is a longer lineage of thinking about the relationship between this kind of lexicon of of violence and the thing that we do on stage. But I also think there's something happening there around vulnerability, right? So the the etymology of vulnerability is, is the wound, right? That's part of what we're doing when we step on stage in a poetry slam. We're saying this is me in a vulnerable state this is work that I've crafted with my own hands, my own heart, my own mind, my own dreams, and I'm putting it in front of you to share, right? And so I just wanted to trace that line. When I was a teenager coming up through Urban Word NYC to get inside the story, gets is what uh, we called it. And when I was on stage, I should see the people I was reciting the poem about in my mind. I should try to place myself emotionally in the moment when I wrote this poem, or at least in the sea of emotions that helped produce it. And that would get me somewhere in terms of performance that I couldn't get to otherwise. Yeah. I'm really up here trying to have a, a transcendent you know, experience. Like I'm trying to, in some ways, leave my body and come back to it um, and do that in community. I, I didn't want to lose that mysticism because uh, I think the language at least attempts to preserve it.
0: Seeing like you know that form of nuance and honestly how beautiful it is and interesting, you know. Following up with that contention that exists that I mentioned earlier when it comes into validating slam poetry and spoken words, like, do you like? Why do you personally think slam poetry isn't always taken so seriously?
2: Oh, that's a great question. I actually don't know. (laughs) The more I think about it, I I don't really get it because I mean, just one—it's the older tradition right? At least in the Western world, so if we think about Homer um, and the ancient Greek poets, right? So the idea that spoken word is the new kid on the block, I mean, it's just false, right? But even if we think again, if we think about kind of African diasporic traditions of poetry, we think about griots, right? Not just as storytellers, but as historians, right? That too relies on a kind of a performance in front of people, right? An act of of sharing the work as a means of marking time but also marking memories, bearing witness, right? So I don't really understand uh, still to this day, right? In my mid thirties, I have a hard time when people say, oh, you know, spoken word's trash. It doesn't really have literary content. It's just clear to me that people who say that haven't listened to a lot of it. I mean, the idea that you could come away from listening to someone like Pedro Pietri, right? Or Nikki Giovanni or Saul Williams or Sonny Patterson or Rudy Francisco and say that there's, there's nothing happening there that, um, one gets at the kind of truest essence of, of what a poem is, of what a poem can be, but also really leans into the, the kind of most expansive democratic dreams of what poetry can can do today, right? You can bring a poet in the spoken word tradition in front of thousands of people with just a microphone and they will rock that place. I've seen it. Oh yeah, I've been a part of moments like that. Like the, that's the biggest crowd I've ever performed in front of was 3000 people at a Chautauqua, right? And it was an incredible moment, right? But I've seen other people, I have multiple friends who've rocked Madison Square Garden, for instance, right? I performed at MSG with a group of teenage poets when I was 17 years old, right? And we did our thing, right? And I've seen so many poets over the years at Brave New Voices, at Cupsie, get up there in front of very large crowds and move people to tears, right? Create memories that that many people, you know, hold their entire lives, lines that people get tattooed on them. OK, so when people get up there and, and talk about how much they hate poetry, they say poetry is dead. It's ridiculous. Poetry is very much alive.
0: Agreed. And,
2: it, and it's alive in these, you know, historically marginalized communities, you know, and in the spaces that they create. Right. Why do we recite poetry when people get married, when people die? Right. When new children come into the world. Right? Why do we write poems about that? Why do we recite poetry about that? In part because they're moments that move us beyond the words that might be readily available to us. Right. So we have to return to a much longer history of human feeling, right? Of people saying, right now, I'm experiencing something that has taken me beyond myself, right? Look at this new life, right? That we're creating together. Look at this new human being, right? Look at these human beings. And that's what growing up in spoken word taught me how to read and how to teach. You know, I try to teach with that same energy as well, like I care about the thing I'm saying, right? That investment, I think it begets investment that's the hope I think we carry with us whenever we step on stage.
0: A hundred percent. I was just nodding along. Cause you're, you're right. It is so impactful. I personally go to Howard university and.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: You know, go to Sankofa and have sat and listened to so many spoken words and they've been so good. Like, I can't even like describe, like just the energy, the vibe, the feeling, like we're all just engrossed in the moment. Like, It's truly an art form. I think not everyone can be like an effective, like a really effective spoken word artist. So like it is definitely a skill that I think people definitely should not, I guess, undermine because maybe they don't quote unquote get it. Since you are someone who has been in this, you know, poetry game for a long time. You are very experienced. Um, What advice would you give to aspiring poets such as myself?
2: Mm. Read everything. Listen to everything. Listen to yourself, even in moments of creation. Like, let yourself flow freely in the moment of, of inspiration, right? Inspiration. Inspiration is breathing, right and as long as you're living you're breathing so allow yourself to take inspiration from everything the box fan in the corner uh, a book you read 5 years ago a piece of art hanging in a museum a conversation with an old friend let the the everyday beauty all around you become the materials of your work and i'd also i also would say have grace for yourself you now i think i was really hard on myself as a young poet and a lot of my friends as younger poets who are super hard on ourselves and i don't think we believe that joy was a kind of proper way into the writing, right? We thought that we could only write from a place of a righteous indignation or sadness, right? We could only write our most traumatic stories. And I think especially as I've gotten older, I just really thought, man, I would love to write a poem about sunflowers today or about apples. When you write from a place of joy, you open up room, right? For that joy to spread, right? For that joy to take flight and for your joy to connect with other people's joy and couldn't we all use a little bit more joy in our lives, right? So that that's advice I would give to young writers too. You know, don't be afraid to turn to joy as a source of inspiration.
0: Wow, thank you. And I think that is definitely some advice that I will be taking to heart. And I'm sure a lot of young writers like myself can relate to a lot of the things that you're saying. So that was very valuable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Joshua Bennett is a professor at MIT. His nonfiction debut is called Spoken Word, A Cultural History. You must read this book. He's written other books of poetry and criticisms. He's frequently published in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Paris Review, and many others.
1: So, Sydney, you're also a poet. What you learn from this conversation?
0: Well, I truly learned so much from this conversation, but one of the most important takeaways I gathered is that there is so much rich cultural history that lies at the foundation of spoken word poetry. While it may be unconventional, spoken word poetry is an art form that represents the joys, sorrows, and complexities of the people.
1: You know, art, poetry, literature, isn't meant to be contained in a box saying, oh, this this isn't in the box, this is what it needs to be. You're missing the whole point, all right? Art is something that makes you feel something. Art is meant to be free. And that way we all experience more and learn more.
0: Couldn't have said it better myself, <laughs> period.
1: Yes. Yes, we got, we got to present at the New Rican uh, Poet Cafe together.
0: Oh, yeah, 100%.
1: <laughs> That's what's gotta happen. <laughs>
0: That's all for this episode of Untextbooked. I'm producer Sydney Clark.
1: And I'm Gabe Hostin. Follow Untextbooked wherever you listen so you never miss an episode.
0: If you like the show, write us a review. We'd love to know what you think of Untextbooked.
1: Learn more about the podcast at untextbooked.com. You can sign up for emails and become a member for added perks. Plus, we share a glossary of terms and other learning resources with every episode. And for behind the scenes content, follow us on Instagram at untextbooked thanks to the history collab fernanda rain and cc payne untextbooked is produced by pod people rachel king amy machado danielle roth hannah petterson michael aquino and shay woditz